Welcome to the Living Faith Fellowship Conference podcast. The Living Faith Fellowship is a peer network of like-minded churches united under a single biblical authority and one common mission. You're about to hear a message from one of the many conferences hosted by the Living Faith Fellowship every year. We pray it's a blessing. Well, I hope you guys aren't disappointed after that introduction. Those were really sweet words. I don't know how to do this. So is that okay? Yeah? Can you guys hear me? Oh, I see. I gotcha. Okay. Hey, guys. Come on in. So it's really great to be here with you all this morning. Um, my name, like Christine said, is Mindy, and we've been in London for 20 years. And my husband is Brian, and we're actually from Kansas City. So we were sent out of Kansas City to London 20 years ago. And um, all of our kids were born in London. We've got four kids. Uh, Madison is here with us. It's great to have her home from school. And we got Hudson, uh, Caitlin is 16, and then Stefan is 13. So they were all born there in London. And um, we are back for the year uh, for a furlough. We've planted one church and we've come back for a year. And then we're going to go back and try to plant church number two. So in case, you know, you're not familiar with why we're here now, that's that's kind of what we're doing here. But it's really cool to be at Mission Focus. I've only been at one other Mission Focus, and that was at, um, it was 2020, so it was COVID. So I couldn't see anyone's faces. Everybody had masks on, so it was very, very different. Um, we also have a special visitor with us, uh, Madison's friend, Ruth. It's really cool to have her here. Um, Madison and Ruth went to secondary school together. So we've known Ruth for a very long time. She's very special to us. And she is in her is it fourth year of med school. She goes to school in Scotland. So she's traveled a very long way to be able to come to focus this time as well. So get to know Ruth. She's really a sweetheart. You guys will be blessed to know her. So um, Christine contacted me and she asked if I would talk about challenges for marriage relationships on the mission field. And um, I thought about it and I thought, can I talk about challenges of being married to Brian Clark? <laughs> that might be a little bit easier. Um, but I'm just kidding. I told him this morning, I'm like, every time you get a microphone, I get roasted. So this is like one of the first times I've had a microphone here. Um, but I have to be careful because he's speaking tonight. So I know he will. Madison will probably rat me out and I'll get in trouble. So, so this morning I want to talk about relationships on the mission field, um, specifically the marriage. And this isn't really a study per se, it's just more of a talk about what I've learned over the past 20 years. Some of the challenges, what some of the challenges we faced in our marriage um, due to planting a church on a foreign field. So when I was thinking about this talk and I was researching some things, um, I found a study um, from some psychiatrists. It's called, they were called Thomas Holmes and Richard Ray. I think that's how you pronounce it. And anyway, the point of this study was to develop a scale to measure stress. And we've got the scale here. They came up 
with a list of 43 life events that a person may experience. Um, and they assigned a score to each of these events. And this score is based on how heavy the event is and how much change it causes in your life. So the loss of a spouse, that was the highest scoring um, item on the scale. And then they had all these other items, like one was divorce or getting married or moving house, changing churches. Each of these different life events, there's 43 of them, they each had a score. And what they do is they take a specified period of time, say a year, and they see how many of these 43 life events you have experienced, and then they can measure how much stress you've encountered that year. One thing they discovered, I thought this was really interesting, was that 50% of people scoring 200 points or more in a given year, they were either hospitalized within the subsequent two years for heart attacks, diabetes, cancer, or other severe illnesses. Now, the reason why I'm telling you this is because another group called Heartstream Ministries, they applied the study stress scale to the life of a missionary. And that's what you see here. And what they found was astonishing. They said the average missionary scored around 600 points on an average year. Now, your first year on the field, you score eight to 900 points off of that scale. Now, I have no idea how exact this study is, um, and it's really not the point I'm trying to make. I just want to show that moving to a foreign field, um, it comes with a significant amount of stress. It can do, especially in that first year when you have to adjust everything. And this study only focuses on the physical side of stress and does not include the spiritual side that we know we all face in the ministry. So this kind of environment, it can take a toll on a person's body, according to the, uh, the Holmes and Ray study, but it can also take a toll on our relationships, you know? So I don't want to try to be pessimistic here or scare you, um, especially if you're thinking about going into foreign missions, because I want to encourage you to do that. But I think it's important that we take a realistic look at what that can include. It's so exciting to come to focus and to be around each other and encourage each other and lift each other up. And we feel so empowered. But I think it's also good to count the cost sometimes of what it actually involves when we get to the field. Um, so that's what I want to do this morning is I just want to prepare. Maybe there's some of you who are praying about going to a foreign field. Maybe there's some of you that are watching that are on a foreign field. Um, I just want to prepare you a little, encourage you a little, and let you know that um, it can be stressful for anyone. Now, I can remember when Brian and I were living in Kansas City 20 some odd years ago, we were newly married and we knew God had called us to London. So we spent a couple of years on deputation. It was a really exciting time. All the plans, um, the training, the preparations that you have to go through, the prayers were finally coming to a head. Everything we'd been working for for years, we were seeing come to fruition and it was really exciting. And even more so, once you get to the field and you get off the plane and you find your house and you make it functional and you prepare to do the work, it's a really exciting time. But what we didn't know is that when you go to a foreign mission field, 
no matter how well prepared you are, no matter how much education you've had, no matter how much research you've done, you will always encounter um, the things you didn't know that you didn't know. There are always those things for all of us, no matter where we go. We're going to find things that we didn't know we didn't know. So when Brian and I went, we didn't have any kids. We were full of excitement, optimism, and we were probably really naive in a lot of areas. We thought we had this idea of what our time on the field would look like. And the truth of it is that um, many times when we were over there, Brian and I would ask, why didn't anyone tell us it would be like this? You know, why are we just now figuring this out? Someone should have written a book about this, right? But the truth of it is, the for a formal training for this kind of thing is really difficult because different fields, they provide different challenges. Your strengths and weaknesses are unique to you. And the devil knows that, and he will attack you in specific ways because he knows what your weaknesses are too. But also, God will give you specific challenges because he also knows those weaknesses. He loves you and he wants to mature you so that you can walk with him closer. So what I'm trying to say is, is that we will talk about today is by no means an exhaustive list. The challenges you face in this mission, they are going to look completely different to mine. It's important for you to hear, especially when you're fighting your way out, that you can overcome those challenges. It's not always easy, but through the power and the truth of God's word and the Holy Spirit at work in your life, you can be victorious over the challenges you face in this mission. Now, I've heard it said many times that going to the mission field is like going to the front line of a battlefield. Have you guys ever heard that statement? It's true. It can be intense, but I think of it a little differently, probably because I have to cook all the time and I'm always in the kitchen. <laughs> I think of it as going from a crock pot to a pressure cooker, right? Instead of dealing with life slowly at a warm, steady, comfortable temperature, things get pressurized really quickly on the field. Being on the field, sometimes it feels like you're in this sealed pot. You have been enclosed in this new world. And while you're trying to relearn almost everything you've ever known, it causes the steam and heat to keep building up inside, creating this pressure in your home. After a while, the little things, they become big things. And the big things, they seem like they're too much. You just almost can't overcome them. And sometimes these challenges have nothing to do with your marriage directly, but they come to you in the form of a frustration, um, a ruined expectation, or a form of inadequacy where you're at. No matter how it happens, this challenge of church planting on a field, it creates this pressurized environment that wasn't there before. If you're not prepared, it can cause the foundation of your marriage to shift, to crack, not be as solid as maybe it once was because who is the easiest person we can vent to right who do we take our frustration out on if there's already cracks in your marriage when you arrive 
these pressures that we're going to be talking about today, they can blow those wide open. And many marriages have been destroyed because of it. So I want, I want to talk to you about some of the pressures that Brian and I faced. But before I go through this list, I just want to say up front that I don't want to be Debbie Downer this morning completely. We had amazing times. Um, we had wonderful victories, wonderful moments on the field. My aim this morning is to share with you the pressures that the mission field can have on your marriage. And I think it's important to be aware that these pressures come along with the mission so that you can prepare, so that you can in some way prepare for um, what they might be. Like I said, yours are going to be different to mine, but it's important to know that they are there. So as I go through this list, I want to talk about these pressures. And then I will talk about, after that, the convictions that helped keep us on the field, the convi convictions that we held that kept us there. So the first pressure that we're gonna talk about is the pressure of a new culture, right? And this is huge. When you move away from home and you're moving into a new culture, um, it's like trying to learn how to walk all over again. Everything changes. Language changes, transportation, the way you interact with others. You have to figure out how to cook again. Shopping looks different. Routines are different. The way you celebrate holidays. I mean, the list is endless here. I can remember when we got to London, um, I felt tired all the time. I never drank coffee in the morning ever. And then I felt exhausted. So I drank coffee every day. And I, I read in a book many years later that that's a normal side effect of moving to a new culture because your brain is so overworked. It takes a toll on your physical body. Um, and everyone jokes with us and they're like, well, at least you didn't have to go to language school, right? And I think that's what's quite tricky about the field I'm in because you assume that because they speak English that you're communicating well with each other and it's just not the case. The culture is so different. I remember one time we went, it was Brian and I, we went to the grocery store and we went up to the deli counter to get a sandwich or I think it was a chicken pie. Brian wanted a chicken pie. So he goes up to the counter, we were waiting in line, he goes up to the counter and he's like, I'd like to order a chicken pie. And she's like, well, you're gonna have to go to the front of the service, the front of the store to customer service, fill out a form and they'll bring it back here to us. He's like, why would I do that? And she's like, that's our policy. He's like, no, I just want to order a chicken pie. And she's like, well, I told you, you have to go to the front to customer service, fill out this form, bring it back, and then we can help you. And he's like, that seems really difficult. I just want to order the pie, you know? And I'm not kidding. She even called a colleague over and they're both looking at him like, what is your problem? We probably spent three minutes going back and forth over this chicken pie. And he finally said, I want to pick it up and put it in my mouth now. I want that pie. <laughs> and she said, but you said you wanted to order it. He's like, I do. And she's like, well, that means at a later date, not, you know? So here we'd had this whole conversation. We're both speaking English. 
nobody's communicating properly here. Um, and there's so many different situations like that. And that's funny, but there's a lot of times that this pressure of a new culture, it can affect your marriage. It can over time wear on your marriage. Another pressure we faced was the pressure of being our own support system. Our kids were all born in London. And all through those baby and toddler years, there was no family around to help. Um, no one there to help when I broke my leg when I was 39 weeks pregnant with Madison. No family to help when Hudson's lung collapsed after he was born. His first week was spent in neonatal. There were no grandparents that were so delighted to watch our kids to give us a break, you know. No aunts, uncles, or cousins. So we felt that absence of our extended family and the support that they often bring. We had people that helped us through those harder times and we're forever grateful for them. But you guys know there's something very comforting of having your family around in the good times and the bad times. Um, for many years, our date nights consisted of Indian takeaway on the couch when the kids were in bed and we were exhausted. Um, when we planted the church, mine were the only kids that were there when we started. So I spent the first three years with the kids in the kids ministry. Sometimes I would try to sit in the service and listen, but you know how that goes. Someone starts crying or gets fidgety and you have to leave. So these are things, random things that can bring pressure to your marriage and to your home. I remember after I had broken my leg, I had Madison. The next day they uh, operated on my leg and then I got to go home. And it was our first night at home with Madison. And I had this huge cast on my leg and um, we were exhausted, Brian and I both. We hadn't slept for days. And so we lived in a townhouse. The bottom floor was the kitchen. The middle floor had a bedroom and a bathroom. And the top floor was bedrooms. And so Brian's like, you stay on the middle floor. That way you can get to the bathroom if you need to without having to go downstairs and I'll stay on the top floor. I said, okay. And he said, I'm going to leave you the baby monitor. So if you need me, you just talk into the monitor, right? And I'll come. Well, of course, at, I don't know what time though, the night Madison starts crying, but I can't get to her. I've got a cast on my leg. I can't go pick her up. But I can hear Brian snoring up above me. So I'm like, Brian, I'm talking into the baby monitor, you know, and he's out. He's not hearing anything. She's crying louder, so I have to yell louder. He's still not hearing me. I mean, it was a couple minutes. I think the neighbors heard me by the time I finally woke him up. I was shouting so loud that he woke up finally. He's hearing me shouting, Madison crying. He thinks the house is on fire. I don't think he took one step. I think he just landed on the bottom floor and he throws the door open and he's like, what, what? I'm like, the baby's crying, you know? And he's like, that's it? That's all? <laughs> so there's these moments that you just kind of have to, you know, you have to work it out. You have to learn how to deal when there's no family around. Um, another pressure that we found we had over these years was the pressure of disagreements. What about those times when we didn't see eye to eye? We were a young married couple. 
we had questions, who did we ask for help? At times we thought it would be nice to get counsel from others, but picking up the phone, it makes it seem like it's a really big deal, you know? We didn't want to talk to others at our church because we were there to help them grow in their relationship. So this can lead to feelings of isolation. Being on the field can force you into a situation where you feel like you have to figure it out for yourself. But Proverbs eleven fourteen says, where no counsel is, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there's safety. This verse is really true. And that's exactly what happens when you only keep your own counsel, then you lack that feeling of safety and security. And this can place a tremendous amount of pressure on a marriage. This is a hard lesson we learned. And if we had to do it over, we would do that differently for sure. God was so gracious to us. But my advice to you is if you have questions, pick up the phone, ask someone, have someone in your life who can provide you with biblical counsel while you're on the field. Then was the pressure of the work. This provides another pressure. While you're trying to be everything you need for your family, there's also this pressure of trying to actually plant a church. We didn't know how to plant a church. We'd never done it before. Before God taught us about the just ask philosophy of evangelism that we use now, and I don't know if you guys have seen the book, Just Ask, but I definitely recommend that you get that because it's really, really good. So shameless plug to go get the book. Um, so we tried everything. We knocked on doors. I think one time we hand, handed out a thousand flyers um, for a special service. And I don't think we had anyone turn up after that. We would purchase booze at community events to try to get note to know people where we lived um, and advertise our church. We did drawings at local restaurants where we offered, I forget what it was, maybe it was headphones. Like if you put your email address in, we'll do a drawing and you get a free pair of headphones. And that way we could email people about our church, right? We tried everything. One time, <laughs> one time, Brian, we where we lived, do you guys, well, they call it a terraced house. So you know the houses that they're like all attached on the street, right? It's like one big long row of houses because they're called terraced. And um, we had a bus stop right in front of our house. And Brian thought, well, I'm just gonna go give people coffee when they get off the bus and try to talk to them. But he had to put like an extension cord out my front window, like this big orange extension cord. He took my coffee maker out to the street. And as people got off, he would offer them coffee. And some people would like decline him and then go buy a coffee next door, you know. I remember watching him do that one time and I thought, this is getting ridiculous. <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> Uh, it was funny. So you name it, we tried it. Um, but we would often think, oh my goodness, is this ever going to happen? Are we doing this right? A new church plant on a foreign field, it can feel so volatile in the beginning. It's like a soap bubble. You feel like it could pop at any moment. 
you know you go for months and you don't see any movement forward you begin to question if it will ever happen these questions were really hard ones and some people had opinions about the answers to them and those opinions were not always encouraging so this pressure it wasn't just internal it was external as well we had some supporters who were giving us bad advice along with some really unreasonable expectations of what should be happening after we'd only been there for a very short time. And later they dropped our support. So not only did we have less finances and we felt isolated, but we also felt rejected too. That can provide a lot of pressure on a marriage on the field. The Apostle Paul, he felt this pressure too. In 2 Corinthians 7, verse 5, he said, For when we were come into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. This can inject a tremendous amount of stress and frustration into your marriage if you let it. Another pressure we had was the pressure of finances. Financial strain, it often weighed heavy, and many times we were completely dependent on God's provision and grace. When the exchange rate would spike, we would lose part of our salary just in the transfer from one bank account to another. When unexpected bills would show up, the visas we had when we first arrived, they didn't allow us to work, do any type of paid work. So there was no overtime pay. There was no way to get extra funds to pay those kind of bills. We only had what we had, and by God's grace, it stretched. God was gracious, and he always provided for our needs. Our prayers to him was the only thing that got us through sometimes. And we see this in Paul's life, too. We see the volatility of his finances. He told us in Philippians 4 that he had to learn how to be full and how to be hungry, how to abound, and how to suffer need. But I don't have to tell you guys what financial strain can do to a marriage. Another pressure we faced was the pressure of time. So before we left for London, we lived in Kansas City, and we both had full-time jobs. But when we arrived in London and began to plan a church, all of a sudden we're together all the time. Sounds nice, doesn't it? <laughs> But when you're planting a church together, you have a lot of quantity time. It's not necessarily quality time. You're in the same house because an office out of the house, it doesn't exist yet. But that doesn't mean you're emotionally or physically available. So when I would say to him, it feels like we're never together anymore. He would say, we're together all the time, you know. But when you're in proximity to your spouse, that doesn't mean you're together. You can still feel really alone. And all this time together, it can lead to tedious arguments and hurt feelings, and it can provide a lot of pressure on the field. When we first got to London, uh, what do you guys, is it called GPS, sat nav, whatever you call it. I forget what you guys call it here. GPS, yeah, it didn't exist yet, right? So we we were there pre-GPS. 
And I think that was one of the most tedious arguments we would ever have. Every time we got in a car, I would have to read the map. And here, everything's on a grid. Over there, it's like when you boil spaghetti and you just throw it, it's all over the place, you know? And the maps, they're like a book, literally like a book. And you could be on page 12 and then your road picks back up on page 75. So you've got to like flip to the right page to find where you're at. And I can't tell you how many fights we got in because he'd be like, do you not know how to read a map? Can you not read a map? And he's like, where do I go? And I'm like, I don't know, Margot. Where do you go? You know, so many fights driving along around London. Um, the pressure of creating. When you're trying to create something out of nothing, it can be a real unexpected shock. When we lived here, we had the structure in our lives. We had church and ministry and jobs. Most of the time, you just have to show up. But then you arrive on the field and there's nothing. In those early days, there's no structure because you haven't created it yet. There's no building to go to, no meetings to hold, no events to plan, no ministries to attend. In one sense, you have loads of time. And on the other hand, you don't feel like you have a spare moment because you have to create all of this as soon as possible. So how do you put the work in? Where do you begin? How long are you supposed to work during the day? How do you even know what work to do? How do you tell the difference between work time and family time when they all combine? These were tensions that we faced and we had to figure it out. Brian felt the monumental pressure of creating a church out of nothing. I felt that too. But I also felt alone and overwhelmed with four kids to take care of. In the beginning, it can feel like there's no such thing as personal time. There's always something else you could do or try. This pressure in this creating stage, that can be a lot on a marriage. Another one is the pressure of fruit. So um, in Western Europe, it feels like you're trying to plant a church in concrete. Tilling the ground is really hard work. And seeing one person come to know the Lord can take a long time. You kind of have to recalibrate your idea of success. You're constantly fighting with feelings of failure. The Apostle Paul felt, Paul felt this frustration for his own people, the Jews. In Romans chapter 9, verse 1, he said, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have a great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul says he had a great heaviness and continual sorrow in his heart for the Jews to receive Christ. He wished his brethren would hear the gospel, but he was met with rejection at almost every turn. This kind of pressure is heartbreaking. You long for even one person to get saved, and you're met with rejection over and over and over. 
I remember one couple that joined our church in the very early days. We were a very baby church. And it was so encouraging. They were so lovely. We discipled them for over a year, spent time with them, invested in them. And then something happened that upset them. And a week later, they were gone. You know, and you feel that loss. You feel the rejection, especially in the early days. It breaks your heart and it chips away at the confidence that this church thing is ever going to work. Another pressure we felt was pressure from the enemy. Now, these pressures that I've discussed are real and they're significant, but they're not the worst one. The worst pressure of all is this one, and it comes from Satan himself. We're all familiar with Paul's instruction, which is also a warning in Ephesians 6, where he tells us to put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the devil in the evil day and having done all to stand. So I mentioned how in the beginning uh, we worked, we felt like we worked all the time. Well, he does too. He works all the time and he's working against us. He's doing everything in his power to destroy the work of God. And he's very subtle. He's very clever. He is good at his job because all he wants, all he wants you to do is stop. That's it. He just wants you to stop, to quit. Because if he can stop you, the minister, the church planter, then he can stop possibly the work all together. When you choose to be a when you choose to be faithful to the mission of God, you are choosing to pick a fight with the devil. And he doesn't fight fair. He is always trying to hinder the work. Just like Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 18, he said, Wherefore we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. This constant fight also brings with it its own special kind of pressure and exhaustion. So I encourage all of you to take the warning of the apostles seriously when he says in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, he walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. So in the midst of all these different pressures that I've just described, you have your normal misunderstandings, you have mess-ups, your dealings with others in these pressurized situations. But when they are all experienced in this chaotic and volatile environment, they become a bigger deal than they otherwise would have been. So those are some of the main pressures that we faced on the field. It's not an exhaustive list and everyone's pressure in this mission will have their own texture and it may be different altogether. But what got us through? Well, I promise you it was not Instagram vice about relationships and romance that got us through. And you know that's for real because it didn't even exist back then, right? There were certain biblical convictions that enabled us to make it through and held us together. 
the truth of it is when you're going through it, it's a mess. It's messy. And you often don't know what to do. So what kept us from calling it quits? We knew, we knew there was nowhere else to go. John 6, verse 66 says, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then Jesus said unto the 12, will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where do we go? Thou hast the eternal words of life. You can't run from God's will. You can't run from his word. You cannot outrun the truth as much as we would like to sometimes. So here's some convictions that helped us get through. The first conviction is that divorce was never an option. Now, the Bible does make provision for it under certain, certain circumstances. So this is not a statement of judgment against anyone who has been put in this situation. But it is the believer who has to endure divorce who would most agree with Malachi chapter 2, where it tells us that we should not behave treacherously against our spouse because God hates divorce. Brian and I have both witnessed the fruit of divorce. And so we're determined from the beginning that was not an option for us. So if you have this conviction and leaving is not an option, then you have to deal. You have to deal with it. It forces you to deal with things instead of trying to escape them. When we entered our marriage, we burned our ships. We knew we were going to have to deal with whatever came at us together. Another conviction that we had was that prayer was always the answer. We developed this conviction before we ever got to London. We read the book of George Mueller. Have you guys ever heard of George Mueller? Yeah. And we decided that if we had a need, we would go to God for help and not to man. This principle is found at the very center of the Bible in Psalm 118.8 says it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. We, we don't have any conviction about sharing our ministry needs, what's going on with our work and our update letters. But if we've ever had a personal need, we never pick up the phone. We go to the Lord in prayer. This, more than anything else, is how you deal with pressures on the field. This is how you maintain a marriage. Prayer is how you move God's hand in your ministry. It's how you're provided for, and it's how you guard your heart and mind. We know Philippians 4, 6, it says, Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Prayer has been what has sustained us on the field, and God has protected us through it all. I know this seems really obvious, right? It's, it's kind of become somewhat of a cliche these days, but the truth is, prayer is, it's always the answer. John 14, verse 13 says, And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that my Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. This is a promise we've held on to. And it's, 
I'm not just saying that when we had a need, God has, we have told only God and he has given us cars. When we didn't tell anyone we needed a car, he's given us cash through our letterbox when we didn't tell anyone we needed cash. These needs he provides everything we need just as we need it. Prayer has really kept us on the field and sustained us through some hard times. Um, another conviction we have is that faith is the real issue. This is a principle that Brian developed in the first couple of years that we were in London. It was based on one of his studies in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. This church in Thessalonica was suffering terribly, and Paul was so worried he sent Timothy to see how they were doing. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, he says, Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone, and sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and comfort you concerning your faith, that no man should be moved by these afflictions. For yourselves know that you were appointed thereunto. For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation. Even as it came to pass, and ye know, for this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor be in vain. But when Timothy came to you and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity, and that you have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us, and we also to see you. They were comforted, he says, over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. So in this passage, these people were suffering terribly, and some were even dying because of the persecution. They had to share their resources and food so that they could survive. But what Paul was concerned about wasn't the suffering per se. He was concerned about their faith. He says you should not be surprised by these tribulations. We told you they would come. But the real issue is how is your faith? That was a really important lesson for us that got us through a lot of times. In this conviction, it provides a biblical perspective. So whatever difficulty you're going through, whatever that thing is, a bill, a health problem, relationships, persecution, Whatever it is, that's not the real issue. It's your faith, right? Paul was worried the devil was going to use those things to compromise their faith. That's what's really going on with whatever that issue is. That's what the devil's trying to do. But God, he wants to use them to show your faith. Satan wants to shake your faith, but God wants to show your faith. So the real issue there is faith. Who are you going to trust and who are you going to obey? We say that to our kids all the time. Who are you going to trust and who are you going to obey? That is the issue. That perspective has enabled us to endure many difficulties and tribulations and pressures along the way. Another conviction that we had was that Satan wants to stop you. And this is related to the last one. The devil... He doesn't really care about your problems. He doesn't really have an interest in them. All he cares about is getting you to stop. That's all he wants. 
He will confuse you. He will try you, tempt you. He will show you all the things your spouse does wrong all the time. Like if Brian would just shut the cupboard door one time after he gets snacks out of there, it'd be amazing. He will do anything he can to drive a wedge between your relationship with your spouse. Because if he is successful, then at least he can slow the work down or maybe get it to stop altogether. In Acts 4, 17, he says, but that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. And they called him and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. That's all that Satan wants. Believe whatever you want, but just stop preaching and teaching the name of Jesus. In our relationship with our spouses, we can get so caught up in how right we are and how badly we've been wronged. We decided we decide to die on that hill and the marriage dissolves. And at the end of the day, the only thing that's really happened is that now less people hear the gospel and fewer disciples will be made. God wants us to abound in the work and Satan wants us to stop. That's all he wants. He's a con artist and the fight we are in with our family is a con. And we cannot allow ourselves to fall for it. But the good news is, is that once you realize that, once you realize what Satan's trying to get you to do, it makes it so much easier to forgive and press on. It makes you want to work harder. Now, this next conviction, I know you guys are very familiar with. If it's not in the Bible, we don't do it. I know I don't have to explain this principle to you guys. All of us share the same conviction. The principle is that God's word must be the final authority in our lives. The Bible always gets the last word, and we did not get our direction. If we do not get our direction from the Bible, then we don't do it. The problem, though, is when we get squeezed by life, and the pressure builds, we get desperate for a way out. And then there is a way that seems right in our own eyes. But as Solomon says, we can't be wise in our own eyes, but we should trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding. In all our ways, acknowledge him and he will direct our paths. This conviction has guided us in all of our work and in our marriage. When we hit a crossroads or a dead end or a hard time, we go to the word and we get our direction from him. Because being wise in your own eyes, that's the very definition of a fool. Um, another conviction is that the mission is bigger than us. There's been times when the mission is what's held us together. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think it's possible for two people to love each other more. But the pressure on the field, it can be intense and it can be acute. 
Brian and I both believe in Christ and we both want to live for his honor. That's the mission. We want to win souls, make disciples, and plant churches because his glory and hellfire is at stake. We can't just walk away from that. The mission is bigger than our problems and it is bigger than our feelings. Our problems are temporary, but his mission is eternal. Second Corinthians says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So we don't look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary. Things that we don't see, those are eternal. I will admit, sometimes our problems can seem pretty big. But the truth is, our problems in this life, they never survive the grave. His name does, though. His glory does. He is everlasting, and he is worth it. And this last conviction, this last conviction, it helped me a lot on the field. All these convictions did. The, the last one, God is the one who brought us here. That was really important for me when we were on the field. It sustained us in our mission and as a couple. The way God brought us to the field convinces us that God is the one who brought us to London. We didn't take ourselves there. We could not have orchestrated what God did to get us there. You, I've told the story before, so you've probably heard it. So I'll give you a very shortened version. But um, Brian went on a missions trip to London with a bunch of guys, came back, said he felt like the Lord had called him there. He went in the summertime. It was beautiful. He took me in the wintertime, and it was horrible. It was rainy. It was dark. It was miserable. I mean, we had a great time. We were in London, right? But want to move there to plant churches? I was like, mm, I don't know. I'm not feeling it, you know? And um, so he said, okay, we'll, we'll go home and we'll get involved in ministry there. We won't talk about it ever again. Because that's all he'd been talking about for six months was our ministry in London, how God was calling him to London. And I thought, great. We don't ever have to talk about it again. It'll never happen. And we didn't. We didn't speak of it for a year. We went home. We got involved in ministry. We were loving our lives. And one day we got a phone call. Brian answered the phone. And he said, hello. And he paused. And the minute he said, hey, man, how you doing? I knew who it was. I knew who was on the phone. I knew God was on the other end of that phone. And he was telling me, you're moving to London. And he did. This missionary that he'd went to visit called him, offered him a job a salary, a car, a house, and the opportunity to help him build the church that the missionary was working at. And I knew from that moment that it was either going to be God's will or my will. And that was really important because there were many times when it would get hard and I would look at Brian and be like, inside, not outside, but I would think, why did you bring us here? Why are we here? And then God would whisper to me, and he would say, he didn't. I did. And that was really important. That sustained me on the field to know that God brought me there himself. 
and also the way he continues to provide for us and provided for us when we were there. Both of these things are a constant reminder of God's call on our life, and it gives us strength to carry on. It was God's call that gave Paul the authority to do all that he did. And this is also the comfort that we have, that he's with us through it all. We know the passage in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. He says, Lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. So I want to encourage you, if you're considering a foreign mission field, be diligent, but don't force it. Allow God to open the door wide for you to go. Allow there not to be any questions. Allow him to put you there and keep you there. Make a journal of all the times that God provides for you on the way to getting there. These reminders will be a blessing and an assurance when those pressures come. This conviction of knowing he is with you is what enables you to carry on and you get to carry on together. So my prayer is that by sharing some of these challenges we faced over the years, that would help those of you who are praying about your future in the ministry. Maybe it will be an encouragement to those of you who are on the field or currently preparing to go yourself one day. Sometimes just realizing that other missionaries have struggled with some of the same things can be of help and comfort. But I pray whatever the pressure may be that comes to you in its own unique way, as it will, I pray that God's grace will abound in your life more and more. I love you guys. Thank you. Well, we wrapped up like 30 minutes early. So um, I just made it she'd be okay taking some questions because we can't get lunch yet. There's no food upstairs. So you guys want to take the opportunity after a few questions? I'd love to hear about how you and Brian made the decision to go to London, how you felt like God called you to that work and what that process was like getting ready to go. Hmm. Um, well, once I knew the Lord spoke to me and said, it's time to go. Well, when we first went, we took a job. So that's what that missionary was calling to offer us was a job. So we could be tent making missionaries and help at the church that was already there. So when we first went, that was all we had to do. We had to go, we flew over for an interview. They accepted us. And then we just, we went and started working. But it was while we were there, we were there for two years. We worked for an organization called the London City Mission. And um, it was within those two years, we felt like, okay, now we need to go back, sort things out at home so that we can come back permanently and plant a new church. Um, so when we came back after those two years, um, to raise our support, that was, that was a challenging time. Um, cause we, we had just had Madison. She was a couple months old. Um, and the idea of raising support, I hated, I hated the whole concept of going around to churches and I felt like we were being beggars. And I was wrong. I shouldn't have thought that, but that was the seed that had been planted in my head. So that wasn't a, wasn't something I really looked forward to doing. Now, once we started, people were so sweet and they were such a blessing. 
And, you know, I bet I had the seed in my head is that that's kind of what we were doing. Um, and that's when we really talked about the concept of prayer, when we read that book of George Mueller. And we didn't want to be that. We didn't want to people that came came around just asking for things. And so that's why we said we would always ask God to provide for us and not for man. So that's what we did. We came back, we raised funds, um, and then we went back two years later to London. And um, yeah, and it was it was easier the second time. We'd gotten to know the culture a little bit better. Um, knew kind of what we were getting into, what it was like. We'd been there for two years. So um, yeah, we went back and then started. We had, um, Madison was two when we went back and then I had Hudson a couple months after we arrived in London. Um, so that would have been March of 2005 when Hudson came along. Well, because um, my husband took a trip there. <laughs> he took a trip with um, Alan Shelby and I think Troy Stogsdill was on that trip and so a few other guys. And he said, I knew the moment I stepped off the plane that that was where we were gonna be for the rest of our lives. Um, he felt that strongly about it. I obviously didn't when I stepped off the plane, but <laughs> took a little more convincing, but that was why. And he, he was working at Kansas City Baptist Temple. We got married, we moved to KCBT, and Brian was a janitor at KCBT for uh, four or five years while he was going to shepherd school. So this was when we had cassette tapes, like all the messages were recorded on cassette tapes. And so Brian had keys to the cassette room so while he was working at the church, he would go get all the master copies and just listen to them on his Walkman. Remember the Walkman, you know? Um, and he heard one of the pastors say, we're taking a trip to London. And he came home and told me, I have to go on this trip. And I was like, why? And he's like, I don't know. I just need to go. And I said, well, you know, we don't have much money because you work at the church <laughs> as a janitor. <laughs> like. I know, but I really need to go. So he did, and he loved it. He had the best time. And so that's kind of what got the ball rolling. Yeah. Yeah, you go first, and I'll think. Yeah. I'll repeat what she says. Hmm. <laughs> yeah um yeah so cheryl sorry yeah so cheryl said her one thing was children's ministry so she wished she would have prepared for and submitted to heading up the children's ministry prepared more for running the kids ministry yeah prepared for running the kids ministry. Well, I didn't have a huge kids ministry um, when we started the church. Um, so I think I probably would have read some books on cross-cultural training, maybe what it's like going to a new culture. What can you expect? Um, I, I honestly didn't think it would be a big deal. I thought we can speak the language, 
you know, but it, it is a big deal. There's a lot of shocks that they call it culture shock for a reason. You know, there's a lot of things you have to learn when you go into a new culture. And I don't think I understood that so much going into it um, because it was the UK. I just kind of assumed it was the same. Um, and I, I think even in the States, like going to Boston, that's a whole different culture. You know, it's a hard field going to Seattle. That's a whole different culture, you know, and I think there's a lot that can be learned beforehand about how to deal with those kind of things, those situations, living in them. Um, uh, you know, I, I tell stories about the funny times, but there were hard times too. Um, one time I, we had just gotten to London. I was learning how to drive for the first time there. And uh, so I wouldn't go far, but I would go places. And I went to a gas station one time to get, I didn't even need gas. I needed milk. Ryan was at work. He's like, can you stop and get milk on your way in? I said, okay. So, you know, here, how you go to quick trip or you go to Casey's and you don't need gas. So you park right in front of the shop and you run in and get what you need and come out. So what I was always used to doing and I was tired and it was early and I wasn't really paying attention. So I parked in front of the gas station to run in and get milk. And I didn't realize what I had done. It wasn't a big gas station. There's not a lot of space. So by me parking there, there was actually no parking space there. By me parking there, I trapped in all the cars that were on the left side of me. Like they could not get out of the gas station. And when I came back out, I mean, it was maybe three or four minutes later, this man was standing by my car and proceeded to call me every name in the book. He was so mad. He was this black cab driver and he was losing money because I had blocked him into this gas station. And I just stood there and looked at, I mean, he was in my face. He was shouting, he was mad. And I just got back in my car and I was like, I don't even know what just happened. <laughs> I was not expecting that at all. So I drove home and I went upstairs and went to bed. I didn't even know what to do in that moment. You know, I didn't know what had just happened to me. And Brian called me. He's like, we need the milk. I'm like, you're not getting milk. <laughs> Going back to bed. So there are moments that they're not always funny. You know, it can, there's things that you don't even know that are going to happen. And you just kind of learn. I mean, I never did that again. I never parked in a gas station like that ever again. So, um, and not that you could read about that in a book, but there's lots of things that I think I could have learned beforehand before we moved. So tell me what you mean by that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so like I knew Brian felt called to go to London. I didn't feel it at all. Um, and he was gracious. You know, he could have said, we're going to go because this is what the Lord wants. And I'm very thankful that he didn't, you know, but he could have. Um, so we had that year where we didn't talk about it at all. And then his dad had come up for a Chiefs game to visit us when we got that phone call. 
And as soon as he got the phone call, we were both shocked. Like, we couldn't believe it was happening. But then Brian left, him and his dad, and they went to the game. And then I opened up my Bible because I was like, this isn't, I can't even believe this is happening, you know. And God gave me Romans chapter 13, verse 11. And he said that knowing the time, that now it is high time to wake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. And he spoke to me with that verse, and he said, it's time, it's time to go. And I never questioned it after that, like I was all on board, because like I said, that's either God's will or my will, and I didn't want to stand in the way of that. I hope that answers your question. Yeah. <laughs> that's a really good question. Um I, well, Brian and I are, we, and I don't know if everyone's like this, but we are very different in our gifts, very different. Um, I am the very practical list maker. I've got to get stuff done. He's the visionary, the ideas. Um, so for him, he gets these big ideas. And for me, I'm like, okay, but how do you make that happen? You know? What, what steps do we have to take to get there? Is that practical? Are we dreaming? Um, do we need to come down out of the clouds a little bit? Because how do we get from A to B? That's sort of where I, my, I'm administration. And, um, and I think that's probably the best way I can help sometimes is we talk about it and I add the practical, he adds the vision and we try to work together in that way. Um, but, you know, you could take that too far and, you know, I could sometimes be just discouraging and be like, well, that'll never work. That doesn't seem like it's very practical. So you have to, you know, you have to be careful with it. But I think for us, I think that's more just using my gifts and him using his gifts and working together as a team um, is the best way that I can help him. And just being supportive, um, encouraging. Um, those sorts of things. Yeah, no. Um, you know, Brian is a great guy. And sometimes, you know, we would just, um, sometimes I would just go out of the house by myself. I'd be like, I've got to get out. You know, I need some space. And he was very, always, you know, accommodating in that way. Um, or sometimes we might take the kids and get away for just a couple of days or that sort of thing. But um, I never felt like I was like on my own completely. I've always had his support and he's always had mine. And there were rough moments, but um, I think it's just remembering that it's not about you always. And some days you just have to push through. That's all that there is, you know, and the next day's better. Some days are harder than others. Um, but it's not about you in the end, and it's just about accomplishing the mission. I don't know if that answers your question, but. What does that Well, we, we have times where we speak our peace, for sure. You know, we have those kind of meetings in our marriage. And, but I think it's being willing to say, I'm sorry, being willing to say, this is what I've contributed. Because in a marriage, it's never just one person. 
you know, um, being willing to forgive, even when it's not asked for, you know, um, journaling has helped me a lot. So I speak my piece on paper sometimes to myself, not to anyone else. Um, yeah, I think it's just always communicating through the hard time, after the hard time, getting through it together. Um, and reconciliation. Yeah. I, I didn't experience that. That's, our family was always happy. They weren't happy for us to go, but they understood why they were going. Um, and so I think, you know, I, I don't know that I could speak to that with wisdom per se, but I think explaining to them the gospel, what you believe, why you believe it, and how important it is, the call that God's put on your life. I don't know that if they're lost, I don't know that they will understand, you know, um, but I would try to communi communicate it to them as best I could. And pray, pray for them. Well, not really, because um, we didn't, our kids growing up didn't spend a lot of time in the States. I mean, there were, we would come back every two to three years, but it would be for a month, six weeks at a time. Um, because they had school, their school system was year round. So that's all they would get off for the summer. Um, so we didn't really feel like we had to, now I'm, you know, we've moved back here and it's like reverse culture shock um, because they've never lived here before. They've always visited. And every time we would visit, I would tell them, you know, this isn't really what life is like in America. It's not always Disneyland and amusement parks and ice creams and, you know, so when they did visit, it wasn't real life. So now that we're here, I'm I'm learning now how to deal with that. I've never had to deal with that before, um, but it is real. It is real. Yeah. So, um, like I said, in the beginning, I, I didn't get to be involved as much. I was with the kids all the time. That was sort of my involvement. Um, and then as the church grew, I grew in my role. Um, well, I still helped with kids, but we had other people that were helping with kids at that point. Um, and then I did a lot of administration type stuff because that is my gift. I just kind of um, do the paperwork or the, the bank accounts or that sort of thing. Um, and then with discipleship and ladies ministry and, and you guys know what it's like when it's a small body, you do whatever needs to be done. There's not a lot of, is this my gift? Do I get to do it? You just kind of have to pitch in and do what needs to be done. So that was a lot of it too. But um, but then as more people came, you get to hand off some of those things as well. So it, it was it was a lot of things, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So when we first went, we didn't have any kids, and then we were working this job. And my dream was always to backpack around Europe. So after our first year of working. We took a month and we got backpacks and we got a rail card and we traveled all over Europe 
and I came home pregnant with Madison after that trip. <laughs> and um, it was fun, it was a lot of fun. And then, uh, so we were there for another year and she was born. And a couple of months after she was born, we went back to the States. We were there for two years and then we went back to London and I had Hudson there and then Caitlin and Stefan. So, yeah, it was very different. Um, and, you know, in those early days, like I said, there's not an office for him to go to per se. So not only are we together all the time, but he's trying to work around babies and kids and that was fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. One of the Wranglers over there. There were times it was lonely. Um, and my kids weren't in school. We were new. Didn't know anyone. I actually went online to make friends after a while. I found this thing called Net Moms. And um, a lot of people moved to London from all over the world. And so I would try to meet with moms, meet them online, and then go meet up with our kids and stuff. So I did that a few times. Um, yeah, and then I would try to find things at the library to do with you guys, to try to meet people, um, book clubs. I tried a lot of things, yeah. But that, the loneliness, you know, as the church grows, the loneliness wanes because you you find sisters in Christ and you grow closer in your relationship with them. But the early days, it was, that was a thing, you know, that was, that was difficult. Um, it was heartbreaking. It was. Um, Cause that's the, we'd been there for 20 years, you know, and I don't think we would have ever left, but um, God took our house from us when we were there. It was time, you know, we, we um, ordained a pastor to take Brian's place. And the church today is still thriving. Madison and Ruth have got to go visit since we've been here. Um, they're doing amazing. Um, but leaving is hard. You know, it's like your baby that you've had all these years. And um, but I think it's good for the church for us to leave and stand on their own two feet. So we have this house we rented. We had it for 13 or 14 years now. And um, this was another miracle. When we first got there, we had this, we called it a tree house. It was so small. And when we moved in, we only had Madison. But then I was pregnant with Stefan and we were literally falling out of this tiny house. It was too small. And so I prayed for a year. I was like, God, we need space. And space is hard to come by in London. It's an expensive city and it's a small city. Um. So everything we looked at was so expensive. We couldn't afford it. And I found God gave me this house. It was horrible. I mean, you walk in and you think, oh, my word, this is a mess. But it had space. I could see the potential, you know. And um, it was, I couldn't believe the price. It was the same price as our treehouse, you know. And we asked them, we're like, can we fix it up? And they said, well, just don't do anything structural. We said, fine. So we did, we put new floors in, we painted, we stripped walls, we did everything we could. And um, it was a great house in a fantastic area, had great schools. The kids pretty much grew up there and it was home for a lot of years. And then, and they never raised our rent 
So basically we paid the same rent for 20 years. They kind of forgot about us. Um, but we were able, it had so much space. We could hold Bible studies in our house. You know, we could do discipleship. We could do hangouts, whatever. It was an amazing house. And, um, but then this, it was owned by the Catholic church too. They have so many properties in London. They lose track of them because when people pass away, they just leave them to the church. And, um, after we ordained Paul and after the church was doing amazing, the, the diocese that owned the house, they got new management and they got a property manager to manage all their properties. So they started calling us and they're like, you guys don't pay very much for this house. And we're like, no, we don't. So they were going to charge us way more than we ever could have paid for it. So we kind of knew God was saying it's time to regroup a little bit, figure out what you're going to do next. And and so when we left, I say all that to say it was really heartbreaking. We were really, oh, and it's been harder for Stefan and Caitlin, I think. And it is reverse culture shock. We're figuring, they're figuring out what it's like to live here. It's very different. And, um, but it's all good. It's good. You have to, I know you have to pull in like you're going to get gas. Like you have to pull up to one of the pumps. Because there was, they're not all like that, but that one, it was. So you just have to wait for a pump and pull in. <laughs> Thank you guys for letting me be with you today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. If you're interested in learning more about the Living Faith Fellowship, visit lffellowship.com. God bless.